preparing to live stream. And I got it. It's going, it's going. I don't have any cool intro music, so it's just me. Totally good. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> Let me close this out. Sorry, I have a thing open. Okay. Awesome. So sorry about that, guys. Um, it's my first time using Zoom, so I'm a little, I don't know what I'm doing. But here we are live, hopefully. And here I am. Before I get into any of that, I want to say thank you to anybody that is live in the chat. I saw Kat in there. I saw Vinny come by and say hello. I saw George in there, of course. He's amazing. We have Water Lily. And um, anybody that's watching later or listening to audio only on Anomalous Podcast, thank you so much for being here. Today, I am joined by uh, Mitch Horowitz, who I got to meet in New York. And I had this super cool like intro for him. I memorized it. And then when I got up there, I was overtaken by like all these eyes. So um, a lot of people told me I did well. That was my first time like speaking in front of that many people like in person. So yeah, I never had the intention of being a public speaker, but here I am with the YouTube. So we're just gonna do it, right? The opportunities come and we do it. So Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come here. Um, I guess we say come here, but we're virtual, but we're holograms, so it's fine. <laughs> um, Mitch is like an amazing writer and speaker, guys. If you haven't read his work or looked into his books or his lectures, then you need to. If you are into audiobooks, he has like, I don't even know how many audiobooks. If you if you look his name up on Audible, you're gonna see like like over, I feel like it's over a hundred. Like maybe that's just my mind saying that to me. But yes, Mitch, do you want to tell a little people, a little people, you want to tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, and great to be here. And thank you for your enthusiasm for this work. Thank you for the enthusiasm that you bring to the seeking community that is entirely the reason why I'm so delighted to join you and, and your viewers and listeners. Uh, I am a historian of alternative spirituality. I refer to myself as a believing historian. I write about metaphysics in history and practice. Um, and above all else, I'm a seeker. And so I'm always happy to communicate with other seekers. It's part of the exchange. So good to be here. Great. So you have um, a recent book, one is coming out, um, but I was so, I don't know, just, I don't want, I don't know what the word's lucky or just thank you for giving me the book, first of all. Um, the greatest thing to me that somebody could give is knowledge, coffee, and crystals. So, and plants, of course, plants are always there. But when you, when, when James was like, uh, Mitch is going to be here, you know, that was super exciting. And then you showed up and you gave me this book. And uh, whenever somebody gives me like an early book, it's just, it's so special to me. So I want you to know, I appreciate that. Um, before that I had been reading Daydream Believer um, in, and it's kind of a strange synchronicity that happened is that I saw that you were gonna be part of the lineup for um, the anomalous inquiry, inquiry to the anomalous. And I had dabbled like in your other work, like your videos mostly. So you kind of caught my attention with um, your talks about Satanism and Lucifer and kind of like how um, it's portrayed today versus what it actually is to most people that are um, practicing Satanists. So that is kind of, and also the occult, and then obviously the Kabbalion. I didn't even know that you narrated the Kabbalion I've been listening to until I went 
and and one of my friends was like, oh, I just downloaded Mitch's version of the Kabbalion. It's so good. And I went, I was like, oh, I wonder if I have his version. Because I had downloaded it so long ago. And it's like, sure enough, narrated by Mitch Horowitz. So you did a great job on that. Um, your um, Neville Goddard talks are amazing. But it wasn't until I saw you were coming um, to New York, or you were living in New York, but coming to that conference um, when I ordered Daydream Believer. And then kind of after that, they kind of were like, oh, well, he's going to be speaking. And, you know, um, we want you to introduce him. So it was like a crazy synchronicity to me um, because I really didn't have an intention of introducing anybody. I was just going to go there and watch. But um, so that was kind of like cool that I ordered the book and they asked me to introduce you. But also um, this book kind of, I was not ready for what was inside Daydream Believer. We're going to get to in certain places, but I just want to say this, Believer, I was not prepared because it had so many things thing like there were so many chapters where I was just like it was almost like a punch to the stomach in a good way if that makes any sense like it hit home and I thought man I would have had this like information as a young teenager or as a preteen then you know I feel like I would have viewed things a little bit differently and that's the beauty about what you do is you offer people ways to kind of take agency in their own life and that's very important because somebody can give you medicine somebody can give you this and that but um, unless you take your own power back, you're really not going to make the change. So thank you for Daydream Believer. Um, that was an amazing book and uncertain places is, it's kind of like a Mitch greatest hits. Like it's, and I love it because as a mom and a full-time student, I am just, I need to be able to read stuff. And I was kind of stressing out reading it before I came on here. But then when I started reading, I was like, oh my goodness, I could just read like one essay um, while I'm waiting in the pickup line, or I can just read an essay at nighttime. And that's one of the great things about this book. It's kind of like a, like if you feel like reading about Satanism, you can go there. If you want to read about um, a Ouija board, you can go there, you know? So what was your inspiration behind putting this together? Because a lot of the stuff you had written already. Yeah. Um, and thank you for that, that, that beautiful description. And, and uh, you honed in on everything that I was trying to accomplish with the book. Uh, I think my inspiration must have been just feeling that I was turning a page in my own search and I wanted to catalog where I had been up until this point. And I felt that um, my output was such that I, I had written in a lot of different and, and, and seemingly diffuse areas from history to the uses of mind metaphysics to ESP research to topics like the Ouija board to um interpretations of satanism and i i felt i i wanted that material to nest somewhere i wanted that material to have posterity i wanted it to live somewhere um when you're writing frequently for different publications things can be spread somewhat scattershot across the culture and i wanted there to be one place where i felt like i had documented what i had been attempting over the past decade or so and in a certain sense, really past 20 years, most of the books in the piece are, are probably were written within the past five, six, seven years, but it certainly represents a thought process that extends over about 20, I suppose. And so that was my wish. And it, it was a dream come true. Uh, it got me, it gave me the opportunity not only to provide a kind of home base for some of these ideas, but to frame them, to introduce them. Um, and also to include updates where appropriate on certain pieces. Uh, there, are, there are postscripts, there are new introductions. Um, there's a version of a piece I wrote in the New York Times 
uh, about violence against witches in the 21st century, which was actually the original piece that I had submitted to the Times. In 2014, I wrote a piece for the Times called, um, which they titled The Persecution of Witches 21st Century Style. And I was very happy with the piece, but after going through months and months of the editing process, as one does at that paper, uh, quite frankly, I felt like the original piece that I turned in was at least the equal of the one that went through the whole editing process. So I decided rather than reprint the Times piece, uh, which is easily available, I would reprint the original. So it gave me a lot of opportunities. Yeah, I thought that was great, too, how before each section of the book, you give like a description of, um, like you said, like in like moon notes and and yeah, I might tell and a story I behind the gestation of a piece, you know, something of that nature. Yes. And as a reader, that's that's awesome because you can read an amazing piece or a great essay, but you don't know. You, I often wonder, how did this come about? You know, um, how does this writer pull this knowledge from wherever they're pulling it from and put it on paper in a way that we are like just immersed in it? So I appreciate all that. Thank you. Um, I want to go through a little bit of the content so people kind of have like an idea of what the book is broken up into. It's broken up into several parts. It looks like so five parts. Um, and I'm just going to read a few because I want you to get the book. But one part is called Strange Fire. One is called Magical Operations. And it sort of ends with Damned History. Um, so if you're looking for something uh, stimulating and different to read, this is definitely for you. Um, most of my authors are UFO authors, but it was my intention moving forward with the UFO work that um, so many people are covering the news, so many people are covering what's happening with Congress and historical cases that I kind of wanted to move back into like where I was comfortable with the consciousness aspects of it. And you talk a lot um, in here about in this book about and other books about the dream state, the hypnagogic state. Um, can you talk a little bit about my, I guess my question is, if that's a way to access a different reality, are the beings that we encounter in that reality um, just as real as you and I in your That's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful question. Well, it's an experiment. It's certainly a very open question. Uh, one of the things that I write about in the book, uh, apropos of the UFO thesis, is that these things that we uh, as a human community have been experiencing since time immemorial that today we refer to as UFOs or UAPs and that have gone so mainstream, uh, they could be entirely real, but they also, they could be perceptions from other intersections of time or other dimensions. Uh, 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 a concept that when one first hears it sounds very way out and very speculative, but in fact, if we look at what has been emerging, say, over the past 80, 90 years from the hard sciences, we find that perception is an inextricable aspect of our reality. And perception doesn't just mean mental pictures that are in my head, but in fact, we encounter physical phenomena all the time on the particle level, but also on the macro, macro level, also on the level of biology that we simply can't explain. We don't understand the cause behind some of these documentable physical facts that we track in the world, whether it's objects at vast distances, again, both micro and macro, eliciting influences on one another, and we can't explain the delivery system for those influences, whether it's the manner in which sustained thoughts 
alter the biology of the brain, which we see in the field of neuroplasticity, whether <clears throat> it's the incredibly surrealistic behavior of particles in a laboratory setting. There are building and building examples, and these examples seem to be accelerating, of experiences and encounters we have that violate basic Newtonian mechanics, that violate common observation, that are real, that are repeatable, that have been and are being documented. And so people who study these things are interested in causation. What's going on? What is the delivery system behind some of these unusual experiences? And academic psychical research or ESP research provides a perfect example. We have, as I've widely written about, and as I cover extensively in Daydream Believer, we have statistically based lab research that shows evidence of ESP or some kind of extra physical transmission of thought in ways that are bulletproof and sound as any statistical research we have for anything. Uh, much of our academic and intellectual culture is incapable of accepting that evidence for reasons of sentiment. They, they, they simply will not accept evidence that violates commonly observed reality, even though, as I was just referencing, we have that evidence across myriad fields, and we can either consider the implications or reject it. And in many cases, with regard to ESP research, we reject it. But the fact is, um, when we encounter this phenomena, when we document this phenomena, we inevitably face the question of what, what's going on? What's the connection? What's the cause? What's the delivery system? What's the pipes that, 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 that this stuff is traveling through? So in response to that, one response, for example, is the theorists have come up with uh, the question of string theory or a theoretical model of reality in which everything exists on these undulating bands of strings, which occupy different intersections of time, a concept that actually squares very well with quantum mechanics. And it may be that something that goes on in an intersection of time that we don't commonly experience affects things within the framework that we do experience. That might be, it's just a concept of reality, that might be the delivery system that we're looking for. So apropos of that, I came to ask, as I do in the opening chapter of Uncertain Places, whether that might be an explanation for um, testimony of, of, of UFO experiences, alien encounters, uh, things of that nature, all kinds of anomalous uh, phenomena. And it's interesting because the UFO question places us in front of a similar predicament of delivery. You know, if these are beings that go outside of our ordinary experiences, where are they from? How do they get here? Are they real? You know, as you were saying. And I would say that our current theoretical models of interdimensionality are actually easier for us to grasp than our models of the extreme velocity that would be necessary for extraterrestrial phenomena to reach us across such unfathomable stretches of time and space. Now, of course, there are theories that cover that too. And again, these are all just concepts of reality. They're all just theories. But we have the theory of cosmic wormholes that might allow 
objects or events to occur outside the confines of space-time. So that's one point of view. But I think the interdimensional model, at least for our purposes, is better developed. And so it might actually be the more canny of the two in terms of our current body of knowledge. So I think that it, it kind of falls to our generation to sit with this question of not only the reality of experiences and encounters, but whether this reality might be uh, interdimensional versus extraterrestrial. And I think there's evidence that weighs on the side of the interdimensional thesis. So I suppose, you know, to respond directly to your question, we're in front of a big maybe, you know, we just don't know. Um, not every experience that everyone reports having necessarily falls into the same category. Uh, this is kind of a trap that our Western thought model gets us into, stemming probably from Aristotle. We're trained to think in opposite. Something's either real or not real. It's either solid or or it's ethereal, and and everything is is thought to fall into this category of opposites. Hence, when we come up with one answer to some problem, we think it must be the only thing that's going on. So, for example, when people report phenomena of whatever type, you could take a subcategory of that, like let's say abduction experience. And that abduction experience might have within it 10 different things that are going on and and or 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 some greater number. And so every question is almost like a hydra, you know, it spans off into other questions, other questions. But the one thing that we as a seeking community have to do is um, acknowledge the questions, not get into the trap of a binary or a monochromatic response, like it must be this or it must be that. Um, excuse me, Gary Nolan uh, made a good point at the Anomalous Experiences Conference, which I really want to echo. It's a little different from what we're considering right now, but it was such a good point. I I want to I want to echo it. Um, Gary was being asked about disclosure efforts and about the suppression of material uh, related to the UFO thesis on the part of the government and so on and so forth. And Gary made the point, look, you know, you have all kinds of different actors within this, this framework. There may be people with an interest in suppressing, but there are also whistleblowers. There are also people with an interest in exposing. And we, we, we mustn't get into this mindset of thinking uh, it, it's all this us versus them mentality. You know, there are people in a position to aid the disclosure effort who might have very good motives, the motives of a whistleblower. What motivates a whistleblower? You know, it, it's, as, it's as complex as human psychology. There are whistleblowers everywhere uh, within the corporate world, government world, et cetera. And, and then you might have forces or individuals who are interested in suppression and they have their own agenda. And, and then you might have a lot of people who occupy gray areas in between the two. So we have to think very flexibly. We have to think very flexibly, which, which is in short supply in our culture. We need flexible thinking across a lot of different fields and not partisan thinking. Yeah, that's, and I agree with so much of that. Um, right now I'm taking as like my final um, cause I had, I was in college before I had kids. I just was like, I couldn't bear to send them to daycare. I, 
I thought I was gonna like dump them in daycare and go back to school and finish it and be a boss. But instead I was like, I don't wanna leave my babies. So here I am five years later trying to do calculus and thrown back into the world of um, uh, philosophy Wonderful. and the class that I had to take my last philosophy class because my other ones transferred thankfully is uh, the uh, philosophy, oh my God, philosophical, oh my God, philosophy of science. There we go, oh, philosophy cool. of science. So um, I love it. I love it, but it also makes me so mad. And one of the things we talked about, and a lot of it is aligning with stuff that I'm starting to read more, like um, in Jeff Kripal's latest book, Superhumanities, he talks about the noose. That was one of the first things that we talked about. And then um, you just mentioned, and you mentioned in your book, so if you see me looking down, I'm looking for my notes because this, my book has like a thousand sticky notes in it. Take your time. Um, science eludes things that do not fit in. And that was from Charles Fort in one of your chapters in Uncertain Places. And it's very true. And we even covered this in the class um, of the philosophy of science because um, people become almost dogmatic about their beliefs. And we have somebody like Kuhn, who was a philosopher, and he talks about how, well, that can limit us if we keep you know, it opens us, but it also limits us. Like how big of an, how long do we study the puzzle or an anomaly for before it takes over you and mm -hmm. prevents progress versus um, like other thinking, um, other empiricists, like radical empiricists say like, well, if we can't explain it through our sensations and through our observations, then it's not even worth our time. When, when do we keep seeking? How long do you keep seeking? And when do you get caught in the trap of seeking something that may never have an answer? That's a wonderful question, and, and it actually inspires in me a thought, which is that we're living in an age right now in the 21st century where material philosophical materialism itself could be seen as an anomaly in the sense that philosophical materialism has at its basis the belief that, the belief that matter creates itself and that we live in a mechanistic universe that's based on chemical functions and calculable um, uh, reports and descriptions of reality based largely on our current body of knowledge and that anything exclusive to that is pseudoscience or speculation or anecdote or what have you. It's actually materialism itself that's becoming an anomaly. Uh, I think the broader universe that we're discovering and look, uh, our generation may not be around long enough to see much of it. <laughs> you know, it may fall to future generations. But the vistas that have opened over the past, say, 80, 90 years with um, academic psychical research, neuroplasticity, uh, particle mechanics, varying branches of quantum theorizing, and a whole range of other things, including some of the outer reaches of studies of the placebo response, are suggesting to us that cause and effect are not what we grew up thinking that they were, and that this easy peasy mechanistic universe that Isaac Newton uh, pioneered, which Newton himself was not wed to in some kind of a religiously fervent way. Isaac Newton was interested in works of alchemy and hermeticism, uh, did the first English translation of the hermetic work, which we call the Emerald Tablet. Um, these, these lines of reasoning as an absolute default are themselves outmoded. Uh, materialism is probably in its last generation of, of intellectual dominance. Uh, it will hang on for a while because ideas just hang on for a while. <laughs> They've got very powerful uh, voices, uh, very um, 
skilled voices uh, in media, in reference media, um, in academia, and 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 materialism as a philosophy ain't going away anytime soon. But I would say that we're at the beginning cusp of being able to describe materialism itself as an anomaly. And within that framework, you see an example of exactly what you were uh, driving at, which is this will to believe something becomes so overwhelming that it renders a person into a voice of partisanship and very little else. That's why there's so little intellectual excellence within the skeptics community today. And as I was saying at the Anomalous Experiences Conference, and the, the talk is, is up on YouTube on a couple of channels, um, we need good skeptics. You know, skeptics are going to help us, that those of us who are part of the seeking community, from falling into the very trap that you were just describing. And it's easy. It's easy. None of us want our paradigm shaken. I don't want my paradigm shaken. You know, I... I believe in the validity of the UFO thesis. I believe in the validity of the ESP thesis. Um, I, I try to remind myself that myself that these myself I'm now slipping into Schrodinger's cat. I try to remind myself that these are theses. I mean, we 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 don't know, and that I have to be prepared to be wrong. And and it's difficult because. You can cherry pick a lot of evidence uh, from any perspective that will support uh, your worldview. I mean, look, politically, people do that all the time. People, and I'm not just talking about today. I mean, people across human history have cherry picked concepts and ideas that have allowed them to maintain terrible positions. Everybody who's ever started a war, everybody who's ever thrown a rock at somebody else is absolutely certain that they're throwing this rock to stop other rocks from being thrown and that what they're doing is ultimately good. I've never met a bully who didn't think that he was a good guy. I've never met a bully who didn't see himself as a victim somehow and not only justified, but perfectly right and dismayed as to why others wouldn't understand why what he was doing was so clearly correct. So that's baked into human nature. And I've got that in myself. And I got to be really, really careful about that. And the most skeptics- Most people do though, right? For being honest. I beg pardon? Most people do if we're being honest. Oh, it's universal. And the skeptics have that in themselves. And uh, I'm concerned about that, not because I want to convert the skeptics, but because I want them to do a good enough job to make us better. And we need we need both. So I, I really think that I suppose I'm not sure if there's anything that can elude the conundrum that you're very rightly describing and framing. It's a serious human problem. But at least one way that we can get better is to uh, engage with rock solid, good skepticism. It is hard to find. It is hard to find, but look for it, seek it out, engage it. It will make you better. Yes, for sure. And um, I think that a lot of people give skeptics such a hard time on Twitter, but they also, it, it goes both ways, right? Sure. Um, we just want, um, I don't know what, I can't say, I can't speak for everybody, but just what you said, um, you can be a skeptic and it's actually great to even skepticize your own work, but you don't want to get into the whole falsification thing because then you spend so much time trying to prove yourself wrong. It's just avoiding these traps in general. Um, and and so, if I may add, you know, most yeah. of it is also just emotional. You know, people get into arguments over Twitter and, you know, 
it is just a battle of emotions. Nobody wants to look like he's the guy who went down. And that's why people can't desist from these awful, endless right. uh, threats, you know? So, and, and there's no algorithm that's going to break that for us. Uh, you know, nobody wants to be the first one to go silent on a thread because they think it means conceding defeat. Oh, yeah. And, it's not but really, that's defeat. the greatest F off, right? Like sometimes not answering somebody is the greatest middle finger you could give somebody because yeah. it's kind of like it's not even it's, worth it anymore. You have to you have to have standards. You have to have standards about what exchanges you're going to engage in. And uh don't engage in trash. You know, a person just hasn't got time and it will just become an emotional argument and eventually the winner is whoever has the most free time on his or her hands. And that's not much of a victory. <laughs> Very true. I want to get back to something you said, and you said, um, we were talking about, you know, nobody wants their paradigm like broken, but at the same time, isn't sometimes when our paradigm and our, what we thought was true is shattered when we come to like the biggest uh, revelations in our life, you know, sometimes like for a while, um, I tried to go back to Christianity at one point, for example, yeah. because it was just simple, right? Like this is the God, this is this, you know, when you're dabbling in the occult, there's more than one truth and you see the world completely different. You don't see it as linear anymore. And this includes belief systems. Mm -hmm. Everything has like, oh, well, we shouldn't hurt people. We should do this. Like those are all like, you know, common, like, you know, things inside belief systems. But for me, I was like, I'm just going to go to church. Screw it. Like, I'm just done trying to, you know, being a witch is so complicated. I feel like I'm knowing too much about the universe and I feel crazy. So I try to go back to church. But something happened where that was shattered again. And it was like shattered when I was five, when I saw a UFO going to Catholic school and the teachers didn't know what to tell me. And, we, and they were like, you're lying, you know. So that was traumatic in itself. But after that, I've been a seeker, right? So trying to go back to church and then like trying to trick myself into just being that. Um, and then something else happened and that kind of just like shattered it again. But that's when I truly realized that it's okay to not walk a linear line. It's okay to be constantly seeking. Um, but it's, I think it's in the shattering of us sometimes and our thoughts and our beliefs that we get the biggest truths out of our lives and lessons. What do you think about that? I think that's a wonderful point. That's a wonderful point. Uh, William James referred to that as a conversion experience. Some people call it an epiphany or a moment of awakening. People in the Christian paradigm refer to it as being born again. And I think we're all having the same conversation in a certain sense, which is why it's so important to me that we not put up walls within the seeking community or any, if we can avoid it. And I've had that experience myself uh, about five years ago, not, yeah, pretty much damn near to this conversation. In fall of 2017, um, I encountered a book called A Culture by Carl Abrahamson, and he's been a big influence on me and a great friend. Carl had a chapter in that book, Reassessing the Life and Work of Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. And as soon as I encountered it, I thought to myself, this is going to be very important to me because I knew Carl was somebody that I respected, that I took seriously. And I had always in the past thought of Anton as just a provocateur, uh, maybe a gifted performance artist, you know, kind of a, a, a carnival type 
figure, not somebody who I regarded as a serious part of the search. And I was wrong. And then I read Carl's article and suddenly I realized that what Anton was attempting to accomplish, albeit sometimes theatrically, albeit sometimes with carny tricks, which he wouldn't deny himself, uh, had a depth and a greatness to it that was that was more than I had understood. And that got me questioning the entire hierarchical uh, perception of much of our spiritual search, whether it's, and this is true within all the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, there is this top-down hierarchical conception of reality, and it's very, it's overwhelmingly persuasive because it's overwhelmingly familiar. It's been repeated across so many centuries that we can't think outside of this paradigm or call it what you will, um, this scale of higher, lower, with a whole vast range of values, concepts, ideas that correspond to it and are locked in almost as solid as our own perceptions of self. And, and yet it's a concept. It's just a cultural concept of reality that has gained overwhelming persuasion through repetition of, of, of many, many, many centuries. We call it tradition. I'm not so sure that we use the term tradition quite rightly. You know, habit can, can come to seem like tradition. And so I began to question this whole thought habit. And I began to also return to my youth, but in a fresh way. Uh, I grew up in, I had an Orthodox Jewish bar mitzvah. I grew up in a traditional Jewish household. I had heard terms referencing the satanic recited in synagogue as a kid. And in certain cases, these terms were recited with neutrality. They were recited in a period before the centuries that followed biblical antiquity, when we as a human community began to solidify concepts around the satanic that came to seem overwhelmingly innate, persuasive, intrinsic. And I began to go back to the sources and ask myself whether there was a different defensible and more esoteric reading of the satanic, not as a force of maleficence, but as a force of rebellion, usurpation, self-creation. And this protean force that had been identified along more neutral lines was revived at certain periods in history uh, in its more esoteric iteration, including by the Romantic poets, uh, William Blake, uh, Percy Bush Shelley, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Lord Byron most especially. And I began to get very deeply into the romantic reading of the satanic, including uh, pre-romantic writers, of course, like John Milton. And I began to see little pockets of resistance, intellectually, culturally, persuasive, powerful pockets of resistance to the straight story. And I began to make my own reading, but I think a historically and esoterically defensible reading of the satanic. And that brought me into a very deep end of the pool. And that was a kind of 
upending of my paradigm, which is the primeval satanic force itself, revolution from, from within, uh, an upending, uh, rejection of the given, a kind of anti-heroics, a, a, a emancipatory approach to life that seeks to throw off concepts that are demanded of us as given. And as I began to embark on this exploration, it opened me to an enormously rich and refreshing part of my own spiritual search, and also a difficult part of the search, because I do use language that is unintentionally provocative. I'm not trying to push people's buttons by reframing Satanism. That's not specifically what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is transparency. What I'm interested in is honoring <clears throat> the language that resounds throughout my own psyche. And some of that may be conditioned. Again, my background within the Abrahamic religious traditions is such that there are certain terms and ideas and concepts that may be baked within me. And I use in public those concepts I use in private, not to push buttons, but to be absolutely transparent, which I think we need more and more of within our search and within society in general. We need to get down to saying what we really are driving at, not some proxy idea, because that creates a lot of mistrust. You know, a lot of times in politics, for example, somebody might advocate a certain position and the opponent of, of, of that advocate thinks, you're not really saying what you mean. You're not really saying what you mean. And that fuels a lot of sarcasm, a lot of rhetorical questions and so forth. And I want to bust through all that stuff. And I want us all to say what we mean. And I should also add, and I have to add this, not because I feel like um, performing some act of diplomacy, but just because I don't want to be misunderstood. My ethic is one of nonviolence. I, I don't strictly mean that in a physical sense. I, I do believe in legitimate self-defense, but not violating another person's search or reach for self-potential. I my 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 soul ethic on the path is doing nothing to intentionally disrupt the same reach for self-potential that I wish for myself. So there's a reciprocity inherent in all this. So what I would ask is that we tear up the, 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 the rule book, tear up the play sheet, and be willing in terms of the very private, intimate confines of our own search to make reconsiderations. That doesn't liberate us from debts. That doesn't liberate us from things owed to others. That doesn't liberate us from relationships, which are the basis of life. Reciprocity is an absolute core value for me, but so is the search, and the search has its own justification, and there is no greater or more exquisite privacy than what the individual experiences when he or she is searching within, and the individual is also responsible for his or her own experiments, and so if we're going to honor the search and we're going to be real about it, we're gonna to have to go to some very uncertain places, so to speak. And uh, that can be instigated by a, a kind of breaking of the paradigm. So I went through the same experience. Yes, and I love how you talked about that. And it's a great segue into something I want to talk about was um, your, um, your study in 
So things that you've written and spoken on in regards to Satanism. Now, this is switching gears. Not everybody's going to be comfortable with anybody even saying that term. Right. Trust me, I was a Catholic school. Um, I found a book, I found Nietzsche's book of good and evil, and I had it in my backpack. Um, the school found out, I got sent to a counselor. It was an ordeal. Um, and Principal's I was like, a office, <laughs> Call mom. <laughs> Your daughter's reading Nietzsche. <laughs> and the thing is, my mom was always like, just, she's going to get it one way or another. If she wants to read something, she's going to go find it. That's how kids are, right? So she was very supportive of my quest. And they're probably just used to me being a weirdo and sitting down, taking notes out of religious books and encyclopedias from the second I could read, you know? So they're just used to my shenanigans at that point. They're just like, oh, it's a weird book. She got it out of yard sale, 50 cents Nietzsche, <laughs> you know? And then as I got into high school, and, you know, the mall age started happening. All the little goth and punk rock kids would go hang out at the mall um, and smoke clothes at the burger place you were allowed to smoke at. And I ended up buying a book called The Satanic Witch by Anton LaVey. Um, I read it when I was, I wasn't even old enough to drive, but it was something, actually, no, I was driving. I'm like, um, I was, I was reading it and I was like, wow, this is like, not what I was taught Satan mm -hmm. is growing mm -hmm. up. Right. Um, it's about um, empowerment. And this one was geared towards um, more feminine people, females. But um, I think that anybody could read it because everybody has masculine and feminine. Mm -hmm. But reading it, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is like, this is great. Well, one of my friends borrowed it and her dad took it away. And that was a whole ordeal. Nobody was allowed to hang out with me because now um, there's this satanic goth girl. But I was trying to explain to people even then, I'm going to be 39 in February. This was years ago. Mm -hmm. Like I was like in high school, you know what I mean? And yeah. I was like a decade ago, <laughs> just kind of crazy to think about. But I was just, I wanted to tell people this then, um, what you're saying. Like it's not, that's not even like what it's about. It's not about some horned thing. That's actually not even, that's not a different God altogether. But um, people have this big mis misconception mm -hmm. about what Satanism actually is. Um, and it's a lot of what you said, but is there any more elaboration you'd like to add on to that? Um, for, for example, the whole Halloween thing just happened, right? Um, I practice Samhain or All Hallows Eve. I do divination, I do the witchy things. But um, my son's school had a trunk or treat in the, in the church parking lot, which was cool that they let him do it. But I was going through the candy and um, definitely not to steal any Reese's or anything like that, but to make sure it was all safe. And I found all this religious like paraphernalia saying like, this is a, it's a hide and one of the cards said hide and seek, but you can't hide from God. It said on the back and it was like all these verses telling my son like, you're you know full of sin and the only way through it is the blood of christ and i'm like you're telling me um practices like satanism actual satanism are weird i'm sure people take it to the dark place you know there's that everywhere but actual satanism what is it like what does it represent you kind of said that right now in it but to clarify what is the energy of what like satanism represents well i appreciate that and you know you'll 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 receive invariably different answers from different people and that's exactly how it must be i can't think of anything less satanic than orthodoxy or rote answers so um you'll get different responses to that question from from different individuals and from different organizations i belong to no organization 
and I speak only for myself, um, my conception of the satanic is that it is a not quite metaphorical force. I, I take a spiritual view of life, and by spiritual, I simply mean extra physical, is a not quite metaphorical force on behalf of individual emancipation, protean self-creation, uh, usurpation, uh, healthful rebelliousness, uh, probing questions, no matter how uncomfortable or difficult they may seem to be, uh, an ethic of, I'm going to say, and people might be surprised that I use this word, an ethic of accountability, because I think that if you're going to go out on your own without uh, institutional approbation, it behooves you to really know what you're talking about. This is not just about crowdsourcing and conspiracy thinking and you know asking anything i don't i don't violate other people's selfhood i don't dehumanize other people and if i'm going to take myself seriously as somebody who's asking radical questions then i have to bring equally radical effort to what i am doing which means building yourself up uh, in the direction of excellence towards whatever task you're performing. Uh, uh, th th there's, there's, there's too little emphasis within the current spiritual culture, I believe, put upon um, excellence, accountability, keeping of one's word. That doesn't mean that failures won't come. Failures will come all the time. But what is the ideal? What is it that you're aiming for? And do your actions, according to other people, not according to me, but according to the people around me, um, my kids, my partner, my workmates, people I engage with, am I making an authentic effort in the direction of what I'm saying that I'm trying to do? Individuality ought to be a tough path to walk. Um, in the marriage of heaven and hell, William Blake wrote, opposition is true friendship. And I always try to remember that when I meet with a barrier or I meet with some kind of vociferous criticism or a disappointment or whatever it may be, there's something there that is a injunction towards refinement that is a goad towards some deeper, more excellent form of effort and substance and 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 work in the direction of honing and refining what it is you're trying to do say accomplish so I'm giving you a rather long answer to that that very good question but the basic answer is it is the force of radical individuality, and it is not just a metaphor for the self in my practice, but it is an honoring of the manner in which our ancient ancestors across every culture identified forces and energies, if I can put it in that way, within nature and sought relationships with those energies, sometimes petitionary relationships, sometimes relationships in which help is being sought, in which a kind of invisible help, so to speak, is being sought. And I think that that practice, which uh, dominated human affairs for thousands of years until very, very, very recently, 
Um, and with the advent of monotheism, we honor that kind of relationship, but we see it within the hierarchical Abrahamic model, at least here within the Western world. I, I seek that relationship and I seek a redefinition of that relationship in a way that I think is historically and esoterically defensible. So very long answer to a very succinct question, but in short, it's, it's the force of, of radical selfhood. Yeah, I like the long answers though, because you kind of have to get into it. You can't just say, oh, it's this, because I find a lot of things are, most things are not just a sentence, if you explain anything really. Yeah, and in terms of the satanic, there's no antecedent that's easily drawn upon, yeah. because we have been conditioned over hundreds of years to think in a one-track way about it, and and it's understandable why we think in that way. I, I mean, terms like Satan or the devil occupy our language in such a way that it's it's almost saying that water isn't wet. You know, it just shapes against everything that we have accepted conceptually. So there's no easy text or movement or quote to rely upon. There's no Bartlett's book of quotations for Satanism. You have to explain your terms. So explain them, but 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 know what you really believe. Yes, for sure. And I tell this to a lot of people um, that are kind of opening up to spirituality. More and more people are opening up to different types of spiritual expression and different types of rituals that aren't so like uh, based in their religions they were brought up in, I guess. And I tell them, you know, you'll, they're like, aren't you afraid? Like if you're doing a Ouija board or you're doing any sort of like divination basically, or even meditation, some people are afraid to meditate. Um, they're afraid it's going to open them up. And I always tell them like, state what you want. <clears throat> you have to just say it. Like, it's really that simple. Like tonight I am doing tarot readings and I'm only inviting in these sorts of spirits, you know, this sort of information. And of course there's all sorts of, there's more that goes into that for some people, if you are like a ceremonial practitioner or whatever. But I tell people like, even this with dreams is you have to state an intention before bedtime if you keep having these dreams um, and setting your parameters on what you believe in and what you want out of things is very important. And you emphasize that um, in Daydream Believer and a lot of your other talks as well. Like there is one part in here where it just like, oh, it shook me. It was something to the effect of, um, you know, state what you want, but make sure that's what you want because then you're responsible for it. Sure. Yeah. And that, that was like, <laughs> Like, oh crap, like you you put it all on yourself and you're supposed to, but not very many people tell you that. Well, you're raising a really good question and I wanna come at it in two different ways. Um, the question, aren't you afraid? You know, you're going out into some uncharted waters. You're going out into the very, very deep end of the lake. You don't fully know what's out there. And that is a reasonable question. It would be easy for me to come up with a rhetorical retort to that question, but instead of that, I'd rather honor that question because it's a fair question. You know, I was asked, it may have been off mic, I was asked by the uh, podcaster and comedian and writer Duncan Trussell, brilliant guy and wonderful friend, um, and he's always deeply, deeply open to questions and discussions about Satanism, and he asked me off mic, um, I think it was off mic, um, aren't you afraid that you know, maybe you've made the wrong calculation. 
And I said to him, that's a fair, fair question. And I determined five years ago that, look, it may be possible. I'm not some omnipotent being. Uh, my perspective, like all of our perspectives, is limited. I'm perfectly capable of justifying my choices. I'm perfectly capable of entertaining opposition. But is it possible? Of course it's possible. And, and I made the decision that I am prepared to take that risk. I am willing to take that risk in the name of the search. The search is that important to me that I will go to that deep end of the lake, find out what's there, and if I'm capable, uh, share it. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is that there are consequences to everything we do, and they're very frequently unintended consequences. I mean, what would a consequence be if it weren't unintended? There was a great Arctic explorer who said, I don't want to have adventures, and adventure is what happens when there's an accident, and adventure is what happens when something goes wrong. So consequences almost always come to us sideways. <laughs> they're not things that, that we expect by definition. So there's consequences to everything. And a person can walk the straight and narrow path and encounter consequences or gaps in his or her own perception or judgment that were never foreseen, again, almost by definition. And I used to issue cautions to people about the need to have, let's say, a work of classical ethics at your back if you're embarking on the occult search or a need to avoid messing around with dangerous little items like the Ouija board or something of that nature. I don't feel that way anymore um, because we don't know what's going to emerge from the search. Like dig this with respect to the Ouija board. Now you're part of a military family, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yes. so you'll appreciate this story. Um, in Vietnam today, the uh, third largest religion after Buddhism and Catholicism is a faith called Kaodaism, which means religion of the high palace. The Kaodai religion is a, a metaphysical channeled faith that came through a Ouija board in the 1920s. The founders and the pioneers of Kaodaism were taught a Latinized version of Vietnamese by Christian missionaries. So they used this Latinized version of Vietnamese to gain a grasp over the English letters that composed the Ouija board. This is what I mean about consequences being unforeseen. Lots of people would say, well, great. But they couldn't foresee that the some of the recipients of this lesson are going to use it to pursue, uh, to pursue experiments over an occult device, which the founders of Kaodaism did. And they channeled different entities, including one of the French novelist Victor Hugo, who himself was a habitué of seances. And they founded a, a faith, Kaodaism, based upon uh, the messages that they had initially received through the Ouija board. Kaodaism maintained its own private militia, and they sided with French forces in Vietnam until the French left, I guess, around 1955. And then they sided with U.S. forces, and they were stalwart military allies of the United States until 1975, when, when U.S. forces 
retreated. And after that, members of Chaldaism had to go underground and they have since reemerged and they're now a, a thriving and large religion, not only in Vietnam, but in other areas where Vietnamese immigrants have, have traveled to and made lives. And none of this would have occurred. Most Americans don't know anything about this. You know, none of this would have occurred were it not for experiments over this Ouija board. And if if someone like uh, came along, I was going to say if someone like me, I don't feel this way anymore. But if someone like me came along and said, uh, "Don't use the Ouija board; it can open you up to bad things," well, none of this ever would have happened. Now, the individual doesn't have to accept any of this as good or bad. Some people are going to hear what I'm saying and be like, "Well, right on." You know, they supported U.S. troops. Other people are going to have questions about that. I'm not laying any political trip on anybody. It's just simply this is history, and it's occult history, it's unknown history, simply because it's been neglected. I write about it in Occult America, a couple of other places. I'm fascinated with it, but none of this ever would have unfolded had it not been for those experiments. So I'm very hesitant to tell anybody, don't go there, don't do that. Yes, you are going to have to bear the consequences, and yes, you do have relationships, you do have debts to other people, but I'm never going to tell somebody not to ask what's around the next corner. Yes, and I just think life would be like, so I saw my first UFO when I was five. My grandma was a medium. She was, and the whole family's like, oh, Nana's crazy. She she yells at invisible things and, you know, but um, I shared the gift with her. So um, there was other paranormal things happening already, mm -hmm. um, but she was very Catholic. Like she's, this is the saint, this is Catholicism. Mm -hmm. um, she would, you know, use the name of Jesus to tell demons to go F themselves, all that stuff. So, and she was awesome. Like she was, she's passed since, but um, I just remember her walking in and seeing something that nobody could see and saying, I'm not afraid of you get the F out of my house in the name of Jesus, you know? And, but she also did kind of uh, Santeria type things <clears throat> like the candles, the burying saints for different purposes, that sort of thing. So um, she, she was open, but um, it's, I just feel like if I had never had that final experience of the um, the link that the UFOs that I would not I'd be I feel like I maybe I wouldn't be bored because I wouldn't have seen into the rabbit hole. But I feel like what is life if you're not seeking? And maybe that's just me. Like um, after my first son, I felt very restricted, and I finally realized it's because I didn't feel like I was growing. I didn't feel like I was learning. Um, reading books mostly about motherhood, um, not being able to practice my um, witchy things anymore, or, you know, hippie stuff, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it was very narrowing for myself. Yeah. And what yeah. it was, is I was not growing right. um, as a spirit. I felt like my spirit was just bottled up into um, motherhood. And a lot of mothers go through this. Yes. But and I was afraid to do it around them because I still had this Catholic guilt um, of not, I don't know, it was just almost a habit of you don't talk about these things out loud. People are going to laugh at you, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But we have to show other people how to be seekers. We have to show other people that, you know, um, there's more to everything than what is being presented in public schools, in the media. Um, inside your trick-or-treat basket is my son's case. He's like, well, why can't I go? I was like, you can go, but you're very young. And to send you off to a church meeting, an evangelical church meeting as your first church experience, I don't know, man. That's going to put it in, like, 
like, I would like for you to be older so that you can make a decision. And he's just like, okay, mom, my, my, my youngest son is five, but he's very um, intelligent. So um, he understood. And he's like, okay, that makes sense. You know, um, now if he has an encounter with some Christians and I'm not even anti, I don't, he can be Christian. I just feel like, like uh, I don't want him to get into um, being exposed to something that's going to force beliefs on him. Yeah. And make him feel guilty because the, the pamphlet they sent home was like, you're, you're sinful, you know? And yeah, we're all sinful, right? According to whatever, by those parameters. But I just feel like for a child, you cannot restrict them to one thing so early. And that's what I was trying to get at is this narrow path of one thing only. Yeah. Well, I've never, I've raised, uh, co-raised co uh, two sons. Uh, one today is 15 and the other is 18. And um, uh, it's funny, I, I don't have a, 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 a good reading on how my outlook has touched them. I can hear it come out sometimes conversationally, but <laughs> my, my younger son will argue with me about ESP research, as he should, as he should. And I remember I was talking about uh, ESP research when he was probably four years old, right. like your son, very inquisitive. And he said, is there any evidence of that? And I'm like, great, I'm, I'm oh, getting, you know, called on the carpet by a four-year-old, but it, it's good. You know, it's it's good. And children also should have a, a healthful sense of questioning whatever is being handed down to them, as well as, I hope, their own serious inquiry at whatever point in their life they're ready for it. I want to say something in tribute to your grandmother, um, and I don't mean this at all glibly, and I really want to be clear about that. I, I love Catholicism. I have absolutely no difference of any substance with the mainstream faiths. I have a paradigmatic difference, but I'm not partisan in terms of opposing practice or turning my nose up or anything like that. There, there's a wonderful mystical tradition within Catholicism, a wonderful mystical tradition. And you were saying, I mean, you were alluding to it. Not only is she practicing mediumship, but, but she's practicing aspects of Santeria. I went through a phase myself where I was very deeply interested in hoodoo, which is an African-American uh, founded uh, uh, magical system, which I have a very, very, very deep love for. And I was hugely touched um to meet a lot of people within the hoodoo and sometimes santerian uh subcultures who themselves were either catholic or incorporated catholicism into their practice catholicism grooves very very well with hoodoo and santeria because of the aspect of um saint veneration and other aspects and techniques that might be considered popular religiosity, as Vatican II might have put it, but that are baked very deeply into Catholic tradition. And it's hard sometimes for people to understand that the constituencies within the Catholic Church that are most conservative, so to speak, are also the most mystical. And the practices that veer towards a real thirst for signs and wonders, so to speak, very often, not always, not always, but often come out of that wing of the church that might, uh, on one hand, be considered more conservative, like the um, uh, League of Mary or Legion of Mary, you know, and I'm, I'm very interested in that aspect of the search, and I, 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 I want to have relationships with and, and, and have exchanges with 
people who are part of, say, Pentecostal or charismatic Christianity, because they are experiencing something. I might have social differences with them, and they may or may not be prepared to sign on to my esoteric conception of Satanism. But I am interested in extra physical experience, and I don't want to put up any walls in that regard. I'd be putting up walls around myself, first and foremost. And I care very deeply about these things. Some of the best discussions I've had, for example, about Satanism were on a a radio show that's sponsored by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I was delighted to have those discussions. I've actually found it easier to speak with people uh, about these things who maybe are from Seventh-day Adventism or Mormonism or Catholicism than I have with people within the New Age culture itself, because you sometimes find people within the New Age culture who are so phobic about being uh, misunderstood that they immediately want to slam the door shut on anything that doesn't seem to them to represent white light or white yeah. magic, so to speak. And in another aspect, to something. yeah, I mean, the heat that I get, the heat that I get, believe it or not, does not come from the traditional right. faiths. The heat that I get comes from people within the new age culture who are so eager not to be misclassified that they find it easy to take one of their own and say, you know, here, take this guy, you know, so I become the scapegoat, you know, put out into the wilderness. And, um, and that's fine. I, I signed up for that to a certain extent. But it's really important that we on the alternative spiritual scene look at the manner in which we are echoing the very things that we came here to get away from. The, the people who say, cancel that talk or disinvite that guy or whatever, are invariably themselves people who would be the first ones to be misunderstood in the mainstream culture. And I will be the first one to speak up for them and for their right to search, even as they kind of use me as an example of what they're not. And so I don't want to replicate that process myself. So when I say I love Catholicism, I'm telling you the truth. And um, I, I won't build walls in the search. That's important. And even Jeff Kripal, I have his book somewhere. I have a lot of books over here. Um, even Jeff Kripal touches that in his Superhumanities book. Um, yeah. He talks about um, the gift, basically, that we have from those sorts of religions, you know. And um, some of the most beautiful people I've talked to, um, there was a woman named Judy. Um, I was so lonely when I was in Missouri as a spouse and a new mom um, that... I went to church with one of my friends, Danielle, because Danielle represented, she was Christian, but she represented everything that um, that Jesus talks about, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Um, she was very loving. She didn't judge me. She's like, I know you do your witchy stuff, but you know, just come with me. So I signed up for a study group just to get out of the house and they had free childcare <laughs> and meet that people. <laughs> and I met a woman named Judy and she was a Christian mystic. And I had some of the most beautiful conversations with her about like um, things in the Bible that I was like, well, isn't this kind of like magical sounding? And, you know, like, like the book of Daniel, for example, is like one of my favorites. So, yes, I think that at my core being raised Catholic, like I'm still going to have some of that in me. And just as a human, I think that most humans have this, this desire and almost like a need for ritual in one way or another. Now, you can be non-denominational, you can be agnostic, you can even be an atheist, but you still participate in ritual. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, my friend was like, can you come with me to my house? I want to burn these pictures of my ex and me. And she's like, I don't know why. I just feel like once I do it, I'm going to feel better. 
and she doesn't subscribe to any faith or anything. She's not, she's agnostic. She thinks there's something, right? She's one of those that's, um, I'm spiritual, not religious kind of thing. So I went to her house and she had her little barbecue going and we birthed those pictures. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I feel so much better now. And in my head, I'm like, you just did a cord cutting ritual in my head, you know, um, whether you realize it or not. So I think that there's just that need for um, ceremony in people's life and ritual. Um, what do I you agree. think about that? Because you even had that. a part in your book and you mentioned the, um, your experience with Minerva and you even introduced one of your sons to Minerva. Can you um, elaborate on some of that? I know it's, we're, we're past the hour, but this will be the last question. <laughs> quite all right. I'm digging our conversation very much. Um, well, first of all, I think what you're touching on is super important. The basis of chaos theory and the basis of chaos magic, for that matter, is that if you everything is interconnected, everything's a system. And if you change one thing within that system, invariably you change everything within that system. It's just a logical fact of human life. Connections are intrinsic to experience and one shift even at the particulate level is going to have reverbing effects so uh, your friend burning pictures must have an effect it must have an effect if one wants to take it from a humanistic perspective you could say well it's just psychological just psychological (laughs) what we call the (laughs) (laughs) what is just psychological you know i mean perspective is so powerful um what is life but perspective seen in a certain way and so uh fine if somebody wants to to explain something as just psychological that's okay that doesn't violate anything in chaos theory or chaos magic for that matter so i think that these small acts can be enormously powerful especially when they're done with emotional commitment. Uh, I I refer to the psyche as basically a compact of thought and emotion. And when you do something with commitment, I think that that it has all the greater effects. So hence, I, for example, will tell people just the act of writing down something can be very powerful in the sense that you've created something, a tactile thing, an isness that's there that wasn't there before. However small and particulate it may seem, however nascent it may seem, something is present that wasn't there before. And you don't know what's gonna come out of that. Um, what you're referencing from Daydream Believer was a urge that I felt to explore a connection with the ancient Roman goddess of wisdom, Minerva. I'm very, very attracted to Roman culture and ancient Roman culture and spirituality. Uh, ancient Rome, for those of us who live in the West, was in some respects the last full expression of classical antiquity, a polytheism, uh, a, a, a sense of coordinates, a approach to life that encompassed magic along with all other pursuits, whether it was martial or calendric or engineering or architectural or statecraft or whatever. And I'm deeply, deeply attracted to ancient Roman culture and the figure of Minerva uh, aroused in me a wish to pursue a relationship. And so I write about that in some detail in Daydream Believer. And it, it was an experiment. It's proven an ongoing experiment. It was a very touching and important 
aspect of inquiry for me. And I write about exactly what I did, exactly the results that I recorded, and the individual can make his or her own judgment. The only thing I avow is that there's no exaggeration. There's no cooking of the story. There's no heightening of drama. Everything I record is exactly as it occurred. Yes, that's beautiful. And you are a big proponent of uh, what works for you as an individual is important. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I wanted to touch on before we end is that you um, you have the, you're also very forgiving because we go into these mind metaphysics. I'm going to talk really quick about mind metaphysics. Um, we go in to these worlds of mind metaphysics and self-help and sometimes end up in love and light community type stuff. It's very it's almost just as strict as anything that you would think you're trying to get away from. You have to do this. You can't eat meat. You can't do this. You can't do that, you know, um, or if you're not like always love and light, you know, then you're a piece of crap or, you know, I don't know, like it's very, very restricting in some spaces. Yep. But what I liked about um, some one of your videos actually from a while ago is um, the uh, setting, doing your intention for 10 days. But something that you did that was different when you're teaching people, and I don't know if you consider yourself a teacher, but I've learned a lot from you in your videos. Seeker, so. but thank you. <laughs> but you um, are very forgiving of the human condition for better or for worse, right? Like we are, we have the human conditions very beautiful. It also has shadow aspects and it's all beautiful. It's all human. But you mentioned in one of your talks, like if you mess up, like don't keep starting over, just keep going. Um, oh. And that's, this is more of like a compliment than a question. I, I love your approach to that because in many places you might feel like you're working towards something and you have your goal written down, you have all your stuff, you know, your goals written down, you have your paper with it hanging on the wall, wherever you put it, and you mess up one day. And so many people kind of just get knocked down because of that. So one thing about your work that I really admire is that you're very forgiving of stuff like that. Um, and you allow the people to forgive themselves, not that we're waiting for you to forgive, but do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, you are very understanding of how people are. And that's not very easy to find in mind metaphysics, you know, um, nowadays, especially we, we look at the classical thinkers like Neville and, and other ones, they had a little more class, but some of it now is like, yeah, Neville is definitely a classy guy, but. <laughs> oh, Neville is it. I mean, he defines class and uh, yes. I love, I love the man. Um, I, I think there are tremendous barriers facing us and we as seekers underestimate very commonly the extent and depth of the barriers facing us. I meet people all the time who wanna tell me about their wonderful experiences and they just wanna talk about experiences as if they're showing you their photos from their vacation. And in a certain sense, who cares? You know, Are you there right now? Are you able to access that right now? Okay, you visited Tibet, but are you in Tibet right now? Are you, you know, what, what's the, the now? And, we um, ennoble ourselves uh, sometimes with, with, with certainties about what we've learned, where we've come, what we have access to, what our perspective is. And we have to appreciate the depth of barriers facing us. And we have to understand that we all suffer from addictions, you know, for example, I mean, here I am pulling on a vape stick, you know, I quit smoking and I'm very proud of myself. Now I'm addicted to um, Good job. <laughs> glycerin uh, vapor with nicotine in it, you know, and so 
we and we have to take responsibility for these things. These things place debts on us, but there are terrible barriers facing all of us. And none of that is an impediment to the surge. Um, the impediment perhaps is non-acknowledgement of those barriers. So that's why if I suggest an exercise or something to try, my feeling is, look, just 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 keep going. You know, it, it may not work. It may not work this time. It may not work the next time. But but just allow yourself to keep going. I, I have a, a little book coming out called The 30-Day Mental Challenge. And it's, uh, on one, in one hand, a super simple exercise in determined thinking for 30 days. But I always tell people, if you don't fall off, you're not doing it. Of course, you're going to fall off. You might have an extraordinary 30 days where... Um, you, your your fall-offs are quite rare and you might discover something extraordinary as I have. I've also had times where I've started the thing and seven days into it, I just completely fuck it up and fall apart <laughs> and I'm off for like days and days. You just have to keep going. You just have to keep going. So I try to realize the disadvantageous position that we, I am in. And, and, and from that position of extreme disadvantage, we make efforts. Yes, thank you for that. Yes, um, it's it's great. Your work, work is great. Um, I you, you you like spit out books. You're amazing. You just like here's another book. Here's another book. I feel like I need a subscription to Mitch Books because <laughs> I'm I've already ordered your other occult one that's coming out in the summer. And I'm like, really, summer? You're gonna make us wait? But we'll wait. Yeah. Yes. It's still um, being written. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know you. You'll you'll get it done. <laughs> um, is there anything that you didn't get to talk about today that you wanted to tell people? Uh, nothing other than I'm just so grateful that you create this space for people to really search. And it's so rare. We all think of ourselves as, as seekers, but we rarely uh, put the pedal to the metal in terms of what that really means, what that really requires. And a lot of it is the ability simply to sustain questions and you create a space of sustained questions. And I just greatly appreciate that. Well, thank you for being here. And thank you, thank you to everybody in the chat and listening later and other dimensions, all that good stuff. Um, where will you be anywhere next or do you have any events coming up? That, uh, oh, people wow. A lot coming up uh, for those who live in New York City or in the New York area or feel like driving to New York. Um, I'm giving a talk in Brooklyn at uh, the Film Noir Cinema on November 17th, uh, which is part of the launch of my new book, Uncertain Places. Um, on November, uh, gosh, the dates escape me sometimes. I'm giving a. Well, I do a, have a, your website in the description yeah. too. So oh well, I'm terrible about updating my website. Oh, I'm too busy, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I'm giving a talk. I'm giving a workshop on practical uh, hermeticism uh, online with the Theosophical Society on uh, November 10th. Uh, another talk uh, with East West Books online November 8th. Lots of stuff coming up. What I would say is, if people are interested, follow me on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz or on Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. I'm always updating those feeds with new talks and goodies. Um, all the writing that I'm doing has made me neglectful of my website. And so <laughs> I'll have to deal with that, but that's gonna come tomorrow. 
right? That's a tomorrow problem for sure. Yeah. Um, yes. And when you go to his website, it's super cool. It's swirly. You might get hypnotized. <laughs> it was designed by Josh Romero, who's also a great seeker and friend. And he did very just a killer cool. job with it. Thank you. I love your colors. Like I like, I like bright colors. So I just, you know, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, that's, that's how we're going to end. We're going to end with me saying, I like pretty colors. Bye. So <laughs> you guys have a great day. Mitch, hang out for a minute backstage. I'm going to stop the stream and I will see everybody. When am I doing something next? I'm doing something next, next week, but um, pay attention to my Instagram. I will get the actual date for that. I have my schedule posted as well. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Leave feedback, share, subscribe, all that stuff.